Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. It's great to see you all and to see people already uh, viewing and uh, get into the chat box, say hi, ask your questions. You know how it all works. So it's good to see you all. Um, We are all here with the whole team, bar John Mackay, who is having a little bit of a break this week and, and very rightly deserved. But we do have Dr. Diane Eager, we have Craig Hawkins, we have Dr. Glenn Wilson, and we have Sam Jenkins as well, all ready to give you some great content this evening on Creation Conversations, where our topic is creation, the blooming proof, uh, specifically talking about flowers and all sorts of beauty and design and everything else that you find in these flowers. So uh, the um, program will be heavily led by uh, our two biologists on the team, uh, Dr. Diane Eager and Craig Hawkins, but we've got some content from Glenn, uh, who obviously specialized in soil, and soil has a lot to do with the kind of plants that produce the flowers, so there's a a connection there which he'll be speaking on, uh, and I've got a few examples as well uh, of some uh, different types of nuts and seeds which I'll bring uh, as well so should be a good program thank you all very much for everybody who's jumping in the chat already and we will launch straight into it with Dr Diane Eager who will be uh, giving us her first uh, our first session called Blooming Proof so Diane over to you Yes, thank you. Yes, indeed. We are looking at the blooming proof of creation uh, because there's plenty of it. And because John is not here, I'm going to talk about some of the things that John has grown in his garden because if he was here, he would like to share them with us. And John likes to grow weird plants. And I mean really weird plants, bizarre blooms. Um, These are orchid plants uh, that do all sorts of strange things like shooting and drugs and kidnapping. And uh, so we will get to some pretty flowers later on. But uh, while while John's not here, let's uh, have a look at some of these bizarre blooms. Now, this is um, an, an orchid called a catacetum. And this is an interesting plant in that it has separate male and female plants. And this is the male plant, so it produces pollen. Now, it's a bit hard to see where the pollen is in this photo, uh, but if you have a look at it from sort of up the nose, as it were, you can see that the pollen is there uh, underneath that sort of hood. But below that, you can see there is a spike that's sticking out, and that's actually a trigger. And so... Uh, an insect, in uh, in this case a bee, will fly into this flower and you can see there's a, a curved um, hollow place where the bee can land, but it doesn't take much movement before it actually triggers that, uh, that little spike there and the flower literally shoots the bee with quite a deal of force. And on the pollen, there is a blob of glue and the glue sticks the, the pollen onto the back of the bee. Now, uh, that's a, 
and it's quite forceful actually. Now that obviously sort of um, makes the bee feel quite uncomfortable. So these things are a bit wary about coming back to another flower that's like that. Um, <clears throat> but the, the plant has a, a way around that. As I said, it has male flowers and female flowers. And the female flowers are quite different. They look very different to the male flowers. So a bee will fly into that. And if it has pollen on its back, the pollen actually sticks up and inside the hollow space in this flower, there is a little groove which is just the right size for grabbing hold of that pollen and ripping it off the, the bee's back. So the bee gets shot and then it gets ripped off. Uh, not a very friendly plant, but very interesting plant and a brilliant piece of design because if you think about that, how would that evolve step by step for a start? You've got to have both the male and the female flowers with exactly the right design and exactly the right mm. shape and size for this to work. And it's all got to work in one generation. You only get one generation to get this right. Otherwise, this whole plant, both male and female, would be extinct. Now, here's another weird looking plant. Uh, this is not the most prepossessing plant that you could ever go wandering around. I mean, if someone gave you a bunch of these and said, here are some flowers that remind me of you, uh, I don't know that you'd be impressed. Although if you could smell the flowers, you might be impressed. They have the most amazing, strong, sweet smell. In fact, I remember many years ago, uh, we got uh, a film producer to come and film some of these because one day we would like to make a whole video about orchids and all the brilliant and amazing design that's in them and all the beauty. And so when this plant was blooming, uh, we got our video producer friend to come over and film this plant and we didn't want it to get damaged overnight. So we put it inside so that it would be protected. But a couple of hours later, we all looked at one another and said, no, that plant has got to go back outside. <laughs> the fragrance is just so strong and so powerful. And that's an important part of the way this plant works. Now, it is a really odd looking plant. I mean, one of the odd looking things about it is that it flowers through its roots. That's weird enough. But look at the complex three-dimensional shape. It really is very strange. And the other interesting thing is whereabouts its pollen is. It's not in the middle of the flower. It's right at the bottom of that long curved column that uh, projects over one side and the pollen is right there at the bottom. Now, in order for a bee to pick up this pollen, it has to land in the middle of the flower, but that's a long way from the pollen. But again, the plant has ways and means of making sure that the bee picks up the pollen because in that hollow place there where the bee can land, there isn't any nectar. Most flowers produce nectar. That's, the, that's what bees are encouraged to come and land on flowers for. This plant produces fragrant oils. And so the bee is attracted by this very strong fragrance and it will actually deliberately collect the fragrant oils. And it's so powerful, this scent, that eventually the bee will just absorb the fragrant oils. It's got a little furry part on its legs where it will collect the fragrant oil. And it just sort of goes, ah, 
and it literally falls through the flower. So it's a bit like this. The bee comes in and it will gather the perfume. And the really interesting thing is the bee gathers this perfume and then uses that to attract a female bee. So it goes to the perfume shop as it were, gathers some perfume and uh, its legs have these sort of little brushes that are designed to pick up these fragrant oils and it just gets so overwhelmed, it literally falls through the flower and gathers the pollen on its way. It's just the right size for the pollen to stick to its back. Very weird. But then it's only done half the job. It's then got to go to another flower and it will get the same treatment. Now, apparently gathering perfume and falling through the flower isn't quite as bad as being shot. So <laughs> this plant does actually collect pollen with the same blooms. It doesn't have male and female blooms. And so on the end of the one of those columns where the pollen used to be um, for the plant, for the bee to collect, uh, after the bee has collected it, behind that there are these two little pouches and so if a bee that is loaded with pollen as it were falls through the flower the the pollen will get collected in that those two little pouches and that will fertilize the flower really truly amazing design and again you have to get this all right within one generation you can't evolve it step by step now here's an here's another plant now, this one doesn't shoot things or, uh, or drug them with the overwhelming perfume. This one captures them and kidnaps them, but it does eventually let them go. Now, this is a green hood orchid. It's actually a very, very tiny, weeny little orchid, and it's fertilized by mosquitoes. So if you've ever wondered why the Lord made mosquitoes, the answer is not to bite you. Uh, in fact, male mosquitoes don't bite. Female mosquitoes do bite, but only when they need uh, iron and protein to, to lay eggs. Most of the time, mosquitoes live on plant juices and plant nectar. So this particular little orchid is attractive to mosquitoes. So a mosquito will fly in, and the only place it can land properly is on that little lip or that little tongue that's sticking out uh, just above the, the V-shaped uh, area in the middle of the flower there. And when it does that, this is so well balanced that that will fall backwards and throw the mosquito into the middle of the flower. And this was um, <clears throat> an observation that, that John Mackay very carefully sat down and watched that and took these photos so I can't take any credit for these photos John Mackay took them uh, and did this research it's just he's not here tonight so that's why I'm showing them to you and uh, you can see that that uh, that sort of lever shaped um, tongue there has flipped back flipped the mosquito into the bottom of the flower and at the bottom of the flower there is some nectar so the little mosquito will crawl around there, get a good drink of mosquito, but then how is it going to get out of the flower? Well, in fact, the only way it can get out of the flower is to crawl up the back there. And most of the sides of this flower are quite slippery, but there is a track where it's not slippery. So 
the mosquito can actually crawl up the back and it has to go through um, that cylindrical part right at the top of the flower and you can see just a little yellow knob there at the top that is the pollen of the flower so the mosquito will crawl up the back there where there's a path that has a sort of matte finish rather than a, a, a shiny slippery finish and it will go through that tunnel and it will collect the pollen on its way out and fly away. Now the pot and the uh, flower will then reset itself because again, the mosquito has only done half the job. The flower has only done half the job of giving away its pollen. It has to collect some pollen as well in order for the flower to be fertilized. And uh, when another mosquito comes along, this time carrying pollen, the uh, flower will collect the pollen which will then go down into the stem underneath. And you can see there's an expanded area down there. That's where the ovary of the plant is and that will be fertilized and produce seed for the next generation, which will produce more of these after their kind. Really brilliant system. However, John doesn't only breed weird plants. He does actually breed some very beautiful plants, so we won't pour scorn on his weird plants. Uh, here are some other plants from John's garden. Aren't they lovely? Absolutely beautiful. Um, and you can come and see some of these at our Jurassic Ark site as well. Really glorious um, pieces of God's creation that are just a delight to the eyes. Um, really does your heart good to come along and, and see these and uh, the interesting thing is, see how a lot of these have tree bark in the background. These are what are called epiphytes. Um, they're not parasites. They live on trees, but they don't actually take anything from them. They just use the trees as a sort of structure. And uh, I've always wondered how the evolutionists um, worked out that uh, the first flowering plants supposedly grew in the ground um, with roots, just like most flowering plants. What, is, what was it that made orchids decide to climb trees and live on those? No, they were designed as epiphytes and they are brilliantly designed to live uh, on, on trees but without doing any damage to them and just add that extra piece of beauty to uh, already lovely trees. And uh, But I do like beautiful blooms and they're not only beautiful to look at, they also offer some other things. Now, we've all, already looked at one particularly fragrant orchid, um, but there are also other fragrances and uh, interesting things that plants offer besides uh, beauty. And I love to grow sweet peas, and they are a very fragrant flower. I, uh, In a place I used to live, I used to grow sweet peas next to a little path that went past the front of my place and I loved watching people walk along this path and they'd slow down and take a few deep breaths when the sweet pea season was on because they were just so lovely. Now the skeptics will say that oh well flowers just produce scents, lovely perfumes and have beautiful colours in order to attract insects. That's true, they do. Um, but sweet peas are really interesting. Now, can you see any pollen in these, uh, in these flowers? Uh, and one day I was watching some bees flying around 
um, not in my garden, but in somebody else's garden, and a bee landed on, a, on one of these flowers, and you can almost see the frustration in its face. I've landed on this beautiful, fragrant flower, but I can't find any pollen. And that is because the pollen is completely enclosed in these little chambers here. And these flowers are self-fertile. They'll fertilize themselves. They don't need insects, but they do have color and they do have fragrance and they are really beautiful and attractive. So why did God make sweet peas? Well, because they're pretty. <laughs> I'm sure there are other reasons as well. But, uh, but yeah, beauty is important. Um, and uh, there you can see I've opened the uh, that enclosed chamber and you can see the pollen in these flowers. So they do have pollen and they do have a pollen-receiving stigma, but they are self-fertile. And uh, you, you can just leave them alone and they will fertilize themselves and you'll get more sweet peas. Now, I love water lilies and some of those are fragrant as well. And, but I just love the, the beautiful symmetry and the, uh, the artistic colors that you get in them. And I'm sure God really enjoyed making water lilies. They are so beautiful that he's floated them on water and you get to see them twice, which is really nice. But water lilies also have another interesting property. They are literally floral furnaces. Underneath the flower, they will burn starch and that produces heat. So they are warm flowers and that is a good thing. Why would you want to be a warm flower when you float in the middle of a pond? Well, that is because flowers have to be fertilized by, uh, these flowers do have to be fertilized by insects. They're not self-fertile. And uh, so we had a look at some of these and you can see some really tiny, weeny little bees. These are little native bees. Um, they do produce honey, but uh, not a lot. They are really tiny little bees. You can see how tiny they are. And they do produce pollen. You can see um, uh, one of them there has produced some, uh, has, sorry, not produced pollen. They collect pollen. Uh, and just like uh, honeybees do when they actually have pollen baskets on their, on their legs. But for a, a tiny little insect to fly over water, they can very easily lose heat. But if they land in a nice warm flower, they can sit there and get warmed up again because they then have to fly back over the water to another flower in order to do the, uh, the work of fertilization. So at Creation Research, we like to observe things and measure things. So we decided we'd have a look at um, how well the uh, water lilies heat their flowers. So here are a few temperature measurements. Now, this is uh, a lovely warm day in Queensland. It's 26.2 degrees just out in the air. And in John's Pond, uh, the temperature goes down to 19.7, which is uh, not a bad temperature to swim in, but for a tiny little insect, that is enough where it would lose heat. But in the flower, look at the temperature there, <laughs> 32.8. So the flower is 12 degrees hotter. Uh, sorry, um, <clears throat> what's tw uh, 32 minus um, 19. 
it's a little bit more than that, isn't it? Okay, compared with the water around it, that is a very effective floral furnace and it's giving the uh, tiny little native bees and, and any other insects that happen to fly into it uh, a very warm welcome. Uh, these flowers are not unique in producing heat. There are quite a few other flowers that will do this uh, in order to give their pollinators a little bit of an extra energy boost. Here is one of them, but this one doesn't um, burn starch to produce heat. Uh, anyone recognize these? These are snapdragons or antirhinums, and they are a very interesting flower as well because they have solar heating. If you look at the surface of these, you can see it has a sort of slightly furry matte finish, and that is because the petals aren't smooth and completely shiny. If you look at these under a microscope, the petals are covered with these sort of cone-shaped projections, and these will absorb heat from the sun. So these are solar-heated um, flowers. Uh, and this is uh, an illustration from uh, a number of scientific papers who have been written about this, and some scientists deliberately bred a mutant flower that didn't produce these cones, so it has these flat cells, and then looked at the properties of the uh, wild-type plant, that's the plant with the, uh, the cone-shaped cells and the flat ones, to see if it made a difference to how well this plant lives, how well it can be pollinated. And it does make a difference. Now, this is another flower whose pollen is hidden, but it doesn't fertilize itself. It does need uh, an insect to come along and literally pry it apart. So the bees are attracted to this flower and they will push their way into it. There is pollen at the base of that flower and nectar. And in order to get a good grip on this flower, all those cone-shaped, um, that cone-shaped matte surface actually does help the bees get a good grip. And so the scientists have actually tested the uh, flowers with the normal cone-shaped cells on their petals and the flat ones. And they have found it's enough to make a difference as to whether the bees can get a good grip on the flowers and also whether they can enjoy the solar heating. Now, I once listened to an interview with one of the botanists who was studying these flowers, and uh, she made this uh, comment at the end of her interview. The implication that we're really most excited about is that flowers are cleverer than we thought they were. Now, I don't think that is a particularly clever statement, actually, because what this person was observing was the work of a clever creator. So that is not such a clever statement. And um, there is a verse in the Bible that reminds us that people who ignore the evidence of creation, well, they call themselves wise, but uh, really they have become fools. And how sad that is when they are studying these wondrous and brilliant designs of the creator but not coming to know the creator as a person. And uh, this is not just a frivolous sort of uh, thing to study flowers, much as I love looking at them, love photographing them, but it is important to remember that nearly all the plant foods that we eat come from flowering plants. 
I can only think of a couple of non-flowering plants that, that we eat. One would be seaweed, of course, uh, and pine nuts would be another one because conifers uh, do produce pollen, but they, they, they don't have flowers. But you think of all of the fruits, nuts, seeds, uh, all the grains that we eat, all of those are flowering plants. And we are told in Genesis that the Lord God made to spring up in the Garden of Eden, particularly every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And that applies to all of the other plants that he made. And remember, there are those two aspects which obviously meant something to God, because when God had finished the creation, he declared it to be very good. So it is important that the plants are pleasing to the sight. That is good for our soul. That's good for us. And they are also good for food. And Glenn has some interesting things to share about uh, crop breeding uh, later on for us. But if we can come back to us now. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Craig has some really interesting things about one of those plants that has uh, interesting ways and means of ensuring that uh, it gets pollinated as well. Uh, Diana, I was wondering if, if cleverer is a real word. Is cleverer, cleverer for, for uh, the scientists to say cleverer? Uh, cleverer. Um, cleverer. I don't know. <laughs> more, more clever. Yeah, I more don't know. Clever. I'm not clever enough to know. Yeah, we'll yeah. make it a word for you, Craig. I'll contact Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> Have to look that one up. But but anyway, um, maybe uh, that's another thing that wasn't too clever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Diane. That was great. Um, yeah, we're going to go straight on to, uh, to Craig's um, section. Uh, and there's a, uh, a rather fascinating section here yes. in the video. Mm -hmm. So um, we're going to go over to, uh, to Craig now, and then we'll mm -hmm. have a bit of a break for some questions and answers, I think. So, um, Craig, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Joe. And uh, I think what Sam's put up in, there in the chat is great. Um, the passage from, from Luke that says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Yeah. Yes, Thanks, indeed. Sam. That, that, mm. That's awesome. Um, and and that's, that's the scriptures just telling us how magnificent flowers are um, and, and how beautiful they are, but mm. also how intricate they are. Yes. Um, and so thanks, Diane. I thought that was fantastic. I'll just get my slides up. I've got one on an Australian flower. All, all correct. Thanks, Shogiwa. Always rely on Shogiwa to confirm cleverer is a real word. There you go. Oh, good. <laughs> okay. So um, I just want to talk about the trigger plant. That's not a trigger plant or a trigger flower, but I thought it was a nice picture of a bee, so I'll put it mm. up there. Um, but the trigger plant um, – is uh, Stolid Stolidium graminifolium, which is widespread across Australia. In fact, there's, I think, 150 or so trigger plants, mostly in Australia, um, that occur across the continent and in Tasmania as well. Um, I'll just see if I can get this one going. There we go. So they're Australian perennials. Um, when they're not flowering, they really just look like grass. So they're not a lily technically, but they very much um, uh, in their leafing system look like uh, lilies. And 
the pollination system from wh where they get their name from, the trigger plant, is um, operating off a fast-acting trigger, which I want to describe. Um, that's the beautiful flower that you see. They can grow up to knee height or even a little bit bigger than that. So it uses a trigger to hit an insect with the pollen. Um, the pollen gets deposited on, on the back of the insect. Not on, it's not in, on the legs as such as in a lot of other flowers. Hits it on its back and then the insect will fly off to another flower to get hit again with a trigger that is then the female part. Um, so we'll talk about that as we go. So I didn't want to copy some brilliant photos that are out there. And if you want to go and have a look at this, there's a, a website called Life in a Southern Forest. And it's got some magnificent up-close photos of how these plants work. But I, I, I sought permission but didn't get it in time. Um, so this is my magnificent art just to impress you all with. So look out, Steve Cardinal. Um, but here's the parts of the flower. Um, you've got obviously the petals, uh, which, as in most flowers, seem to have some role in attracting insects. Um, you've got the throat appendages there. They seem to be guides to uh, guide the insect into the nectar well there in, in the centre of the flower. Um, but also those throat appendages seem to uh, discourage insects that are not good um, for the for the pollination of the flower um, from getting into the nectar well. Um, the actual flower is stem is quite interesting. Um, the column is um, a combination or a fusing of the male and the female part. So, just the very basics of flower uh, structure is the anthers which produce the pollen. That's the male part. The stigma is the female receptive part and then usually um, the pollen when it lands on the stigma will send a tube down the floral tube and fertilise um, the female seeds sort of deep down in the flower. Um, so these two parts are fused together on this particular um, flower to produce uh, the trigger um, and that's what fires. So we'll have a, a look at this. this is how the insect comes in and the insect is attracted to the really rich nectar that's in the nectar well. Um, seems to really love it and uh, it's so good that the insect seems to visit many flowers on the same stem and then fly off to other stems and on they go. It's guided in there by those throat appendages, uh, sit and land um, and, and on the petals there, all, all perfectly designed for them to do that. And when it puts its um, like proboscis into the nectar well, that sets off cells in there, causes them to have low pressure on that first bend in the trigger and it fires up and hits the insect on the back there. It's, it's very, very fast. In fact, it's approximately, uh, it takes about 10 milliseconds, which is one one hundredth of a of a second. Um, now, when you set this off, it, it it can actually reset, so the trigger will reset, and um, it, it takes about ten minutes to do that. 
So when you see in the little video I've got in a minute where we set it off, we're not really destroying the opportunity of that plant to pollinate. Um, but I think that's quite incredible that they can reset as well. And the interesting thing is that the slap on the back, which is would have to be quite firm for a little insect, uh, does not deter it. So maybe that's suggesting, one, how good the nectar is, but also uh, I suppose <laughs> it's a fairly firm uh, back on, on most of those insects with the cuticle that they have. Um, now, with the pressure of the, the trigger on the back of the the insect, um, it stays there and the insect has to back out of where where it's been hit and uh, that 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 means the pollen sort of scraped off the 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 male part uh, and deposited on the back nice and firmly and the the other interesting thing if an insect just lays on uh, just lands on the flower it doesn't um doesn't set the trigger off it actually has to be feeding in the nectar well to set the trigger off um, okay, so to take that to the next level, um, the, there's an order in the flowering of the, the trigger plant. So the, the lower flowers are the first to develop. Um, now, it doesn't self-pollinate because you've got the male anthers right next to the female stigma, um, and that could cause self-pollination within the one flower or even uh, if the insect went from one flower to the next flower on the same plant, the plant is still basically self-pollinating. Now, the trouble with that is that that can cause like a, breed, a breeding, um, inbreeding depression um, and, uh, and reduce genetic diversity. But, uh, you know, God's worked it out that he, he, he wants a broad genetic diversity across organisms as much as possible. And um, so he's worked it out in this amazing design that the flowers don't self-pollinate. One, because the anthers develop the pollen first and the stigma is, is covered up. The female part is covered up while, while the anthers are producing pollen. And then once they're spent, then the stigma starts to develop and can receive pollen from another flower when the insect then repeats it. So the trigger is going off one to release the pollen and then uh, on a later occasion to receive pollen. Um, but the other thing is there's different stages in the flowering. The lower ones are the first to um, produce the anthers. And then uh, as the other flowers develop up the stem, they become the receptive um, part. Um, oh, what's happened there? Sorry. I've Go back to that. There we go. Um, stage two. So that's the, the younger flower um, that's starting uh, to produce pollen. Um, and then that's the youngest one. So the anthers are full of pollen, but the stigma's not receptive. The stigma's receptive at this stage now on the bottom one. But the really interesting thing is, and it's hard to explain why, maybe there's a difference in the nectar and the nectar well but the bee or the insect lands on the bottom flower first. So in other words, it's bringing pollen uh, from a previous flower and it lands on the, um, what, 
on the bottom flower with that pollen and then it moves up the stem uh, visiting the flowers as it goes up with pollen from the other flower won't matter because it's they're not receptive at this stage it'll pick that pollen off and then fly off to another flower and visit the bottom uh, flower flower on that other stem so that's an incredible um, thing that the insects know to do and I, I don't think you can explain that in any other way except a magnificent design as i was studying this i came across a quote from uh, one of the people researching it and they said oh sorry i kept push, pushing the wrong button they said this uh, after going through all the amazing uh, parts of the trigger plant flower and how it works uh, evolution a masterclass in design <laughs> now, wow. that that's an incredible statement because um, design always comes about from a designer that has an intent a plan and a purpose which are all attributes of intelligence so I, I don't know how you can say say that blind random chance evolution is a masterclass in design um, but as Diane was saying, I guess that's part of this foolishness that, that starts to creep in. You can study and look and take close-up photos of magnificent design and then call it evolution. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Um, so, well, Sam, if we can uh, perhaps show the video now. It, this is um, showing you how fast the trigger is. So it'll show you, you them firing and then we, right at the end try and slow it up to the slowest um, uh, speed that we could and it's still quite fast so let's have a look at this gotcha recording right here I'm filming got me you're kidding me got that? yeah This will be a good one if we get it. Yeah, he's already triggered, I think. Okay, so come back to us, I think, now. Yeah. It reminds Sam. me a bit like a, of a Venus flytrap, a similar sort of, um, like a mechanism, like it's tickled and then it, it, it activates. Yeah, 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 it, it quite possibly is, although this one's about pollen and not actually trapping the insect itself. No, no, that's true. No, I was, I was meaning the mechanism of, uh, mm -hmm. of things. Yeah, yeah so... So how much did you slow that down, Sam? Um, so that was, so the original, I would probably say that was about 15% speed of real time. 
Mm. So we're, we're probably talking about uh, a, about a, a tenth of a second for that to activate, I'd say. I think there's a bit of a movement amongst bees to um, try and stop this happening because they're, they're, they're finding in their old age they're getting um, sort of brain injuries and, and concussion. <laughs> Bees against uh, <laughs> catapult. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's been a great program so far. Thank you very much uh, to both Diane and Craig. That's great. And thank you for everybody who's engaging in the chat as well. Uh, so let's go over to some um, questions now, Sam, and uh, and some perhaps some thank yous first of all, but then into some, some questions. All right. Well, we've got to highlight this comment coming from uh, Douglas Boffey. Oops, I only just realized I was missing creation research. Heil. It's, it's never a good time when you're missing crea creation conversations. Uh, but welcome to the stream. Welcome, everyone. It's good to see everyone here. Hello. Um, and uh, we're going to kick it off with, uh, got to give it some thanks for Doki Doki coming in strong with two US buckaroos, a pair character turning around, waving his hand, saying, hey, you, while lowering his glasses. Hey, you. <laughs> How's that? Um, and then uh, we've also got another Doki, uh, one coming in from Doki Doki Bubble Club, 149 US buckaroos, a red rose. Oh, right. very good. Very lovely. appropriate, yeah. lovely jubbly. Yeah. Um, he sent in a few questions uh, himself, and we've got this one coming from Doki. Uh, question, is there a problem in assuming the flowers surviving in the harshest of environments are the best examples of evolution in flowering plants? Well, I suppose it is a case of survival of the fittest, but that doesn't explain how they got to be flowering in the first place. So... Um, Survival of the fittest and natural selection, oh, those are the same thing. Um, those are real processes, but they won't make anything evolve and they certainly won't create anything new. They just explain why some things survive and other things die out. It's similar to the argument with the um, why is Australia got um, such unique creatures. You'll find lots of unique examples of design in these flowers that are struggling mm. to uh, survive or rather um, flowers that are found in harsh environments just like you have examples of unique creatures in australia but the uh, the evidence is very clear that they didn't evolve there it's the last place that they're able to survive um, mm. and you find this with a lot of the flowering plants and stuff as well and you can see examples of modern examples of this where they've um you know you've artificially manipulated uh, flowers for a certain condition, you'll find that they almost always lose um, another uh, trait of some description. Um, take, for instance, if you try and breed thornless blackberries, for instance, um, not only if you just let them be, will they revert back to producing thorns, but you'll find that in the thornless blackberry varieties, um, the blackberries taste absolutely awful. So you're going to lose something somewhere. It's an example of that natural selection, or in the case of the thornless blackberries, artificial selection. Um, you're just highlighting one particular trait over another. You're not actually evolving or adding any new information. And I don't think you can gradually and slowly um, evolve features to survive something that is otherwise going to kill you. Um, if you don't already have those features, then you're dead. 
So yes, yes, um, yes that's right. Mm. Uh, so you've already got to have mm. those features. You don't. You don't slowly evolve them or randomly evolve them. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. No. Mm. All right, Sam, let's have another question. All right, well, we've got another one coming from Doki Doki. Um, this one, is, this one's a bit of an interesting one, a bit more of a history lesson. Uh, he asked, uh, how did botany and botanist get its name? Maybe well, we should ask uh, William Turner, the father of botany, uh -huh. who in the 1500s, a Christian man, believed in the Bible, it's considered the father, father of botany. You know, if we were living in the day of um, Noah or Adam, well, we'd live long enough that we could have asked him. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> yes, that's true. Mm. Well, the, the, the quick answer is that um, mm. botany comes from the Latin botanicus, which comes from mm. the Greek uh, botanicoi or botanicae, um, which is reference to pasture. Um, generically mm. plants, but mm. I think if I remember correctly, when I did botany, it was it was it was more the the Greek root word had more to do with pasture or grassland or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Grass and yeah. growth, yeah, um, mm. in some way. So you'll find when a lot of these sciences, the modern kind of sciences, became determined in around the fifteen to sixteen hundreds. Um, they would borrow a lot of the sort of Greek and Latin words in order to describe yeah, what they were uh, six, doing. In the 1690s, it came from the word botanic. Yes. I think is that, is that, that, that's, that that's the Greek word for Greek, yeah. um, grass or pasture. Yes. Yeah. And in Victorian times, it was very popular to go out and look for interesting plants out in the countryside, and that was called botanizing. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's yeah. It's but it was botanic botanicus yeah. from botanicos, mm. and then yeah. Anyway, you want to be careful saying that these days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, good stuff. Any more? Any more questions, Sam? Before we move all right, on? we'll 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 get the uh, the third um, question from Doki out of the way. Um, question: Did plants make thorns to protect themselves? Uh, quick answer is no. on um, episode seven, I believe, of um, around the museum. <laughs> yes, 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 there's plenty yeah. of thorny plants that do get eaten. Actually, um, sheep are quite fond of a feed of roses. Uh, Camels, acacia, giraffes. Yes. Um, mm. Yeah. You know, they all. Yeah. Well, Diane, why don't you just briefly run down where thorns um, come from? Botanically? Well, we are we are actually told that uh, thorns were uh, part of God's judgment. Uh, mm. When God cursed the ground, he said that it would produce thorns and thistles. And we know that thorns, um, in spite of the fact sheep might like to eat roses, uh, rose thorns can be quite dangerous to us because they pierce our skin and we can get infections. So they are part of God's judgment. And uh, if you look at thorns uh, in terms of the internal structure of plants, what you find is that you've got a mismatch of growth of different parts of the plants. Now, some thorns, uh, like on a lemon tree or some spines, um, are actually where the internal plumbing that, um, that is the support structure for leaves and for stems 
uh, just starts to grow and then gives up and you have a mismatch between the soft green tissue where all the photosynthesizing part of the other leaf is um, just doesn't match with the vascular tissue that's the uh, the internal plumbing that's the, um, the the support structure for it and so it sticks out the sides or the plant starts to grow some uh, branches or um, leaf bases and they just give up so in fact that is a loss of structure and a mismatch in their growth things like uh, the um, uh, blackberries and rose thorns uh, they are an overgrowth of surface tissue um, so again it's a degeneration the plant has changed but it hasn't gained anything it certainly hasn't gained anything functional so um, thorns and thistles are a degeneration that's why we can say that they are part of the good to bad to worse history of the world they weren't there in the first place God made it clear they were part of his judgment and we can see that they are a degenerative process and a degenerative structure. And they don't seem to stop any of the um, animals other than us. <laughs> if you ever yes. try blackberries, and I hate mm. to disagree with Joe, but I grow uh, thornless blackberries. They now have been able to manipulate them by breeding to be very tasty. Um, but out in the natural environment, mm. yes, they wouldn't do that. They, they're yes. able to lead them to do that. Well, that, that took a bit of creative design to be able to do that, to, to yes. make them. Exactly. Yeah. Took yeah. some intelligent and some work. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Great stuff. All right. Um, well, let's uh, carry on then if we've come to the end of questions for the moment. Just see where we are with this. There we go. Um, all right, let's well, go over to Glenn now. All right, let's see if uh, I can do his little section. Share so my over to you. Let's do some yeah. soil science. Soil science. Well, oh my well, goodness, sort all of. Kind of things up here. <laughs> well, I do have degrees in soil science, but my first degree was in plant science. So yeah. I've got degree, my BS degree is in plant science. Now, keep in mind, this was almost 50 years ago, 45 <laughs> years ago. So much has changed. Who's but counting? I wanted to present a little bit just on the, <laughs> some of the things uh, on flowering. And we're going to talk about the different types of, of change, the different types that, uh, you know, they would claim to be evolution. Uh, type mm. one change is just adaptation. It's just any change. What there's as we talked about, no additional genetic information form. It's a lost genetic information. Type two, both of these first two are really the principles of, of crop breeding. And that's transfer of genetic information uh, from one organism to the other. And then type three is the macroevolution. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. So I took a lot of uh, crop breeding classes. I took um, plant physiology, plant pathology, but I don't even remember which all courses I took, uh, sugarcane breeding, cotton breeding. Um, I took like three or four different breeding classes. And there's various objectives. You know, you tend to think of it as, well, we're breeding for higher yields or improved quality, but it's, mm. it's much more specific to that than that. Um, oftentimes, it's just for the characteristics of the plant so that it can be uh, mechanically harvested. And um, 
others for moisture stress or for resisting toxic substances in the soil. And more recently, it's for heat tolerance. There's a lot of breeding in, the, in that area. We've already talked a little bit about the flowers, so I'm going to talk about you know the breeding uh, practices with these perfect flowers that have both the male and the female parts. And uh, and it's just a, as Craig talked about with with the anther, where the pollen is developed and getting it to go into the female part that starts with the stigma and then it's got this long tube and then it goes down into the to the ovaries mm -hmm. and so plant breeders need to take advantage of this and in some crops like corn it's quite easy because you've you've got the male part quite a distance from the female part and so if you want to do one way is just stop the cut off the the tops of the corn or put a bag over it or once they they do the artificial breeding of them you can cover them to keep the silks from being fertilized by any other plants by mistake so type one um it, it can be produced in many different ways it does it naturally type one is just a change it's a loss of pre-existing genetic information as I mentioned in the corn, you can just go through and not let them reproduce by cutting the tops off or putting a bag over the silk. Um, but it can do this naturally. Just, you know, the examples of, you know, bright colored males are easier seen and the predators eat them uh, before they can breed. Well, that's not creating new genetic information. That's a loss of genetic information. Um, there's also to do this by uh, mutations. You know, we know the example of the fruit flies. They ionize radiation to produce thousands of different types of fruit flies, but they were all still fruit flies. This was a, a loss of pre-existing information. They do this with, with seeds as well. But again, it's not producing a new genetic information. So in the, the breeding, I was just amazed um, when we go out and visit the actual breeders and they would show us the techniques and a few times we got to practice the techniques because, I mean, it's quite intricate and uh, I don't know how these crop breeders did it because you have to have really good eyes and very steady hands um, to be able to go into the flowering parts and, and do this. Um, but you can cross plants or cross animals um and hybridization is just doing this with two plants of um dissimilar genotypes and so you would take the pollen from one and then you have to introduce it to the stamen uh, of the others and got to see these guys doing this out in in many different fields one that i was amazed with was out in the rice fields because one you're out in a flooded field um but at lsu the the guy doing it was I think at, in his 70s and here I was in my 20s thinking you know I don't think I have the eyesight to be able to see to be able to go into these little flowers now this isn't a rice flower but the, the rice ones were even smaller that he was having to to deal with um, I, I, I was amazed with how they did this one of the things that though that I I was um, amazed with is how the crop breeders 
would travel all over the world looking for uh, a, a native version of their of their plant. The cotton breeders, I remember, would go to Australia and travel throughout the outback looking for native versions of cotton because while they might teach about evolution, they instinctively, they knew that plants only reproduce after their own kind. So if they wanted a unique trait that they wanted to put into a plant, something that was more resistant to a disease or more resistant to a herbicide, um, they needed to find a native plant that was also in the cotton family. And the same was true with sugarcane, rice. They would travel all over the world looking for plants that had a different genotype, a different trait, and they wanted to be able to capture that. The other thing I was amazed with is that, you know, for most of these, you get one season to be able to um, cross, make the cross, grow the seed, next year plant that seed, grow that crop, select the traits, and then do it all over again. And it may be 15 years of doing that before they would finally have something that they accomplished in their career. And many times they would do this for 15 years and then find that they really didn't make any success and didn't have anything to show for it. So I was definitely glad I didn't go into plant science and I shifted over to crop science. Um, the other was type three, that was the macroevolution. And I just have a few quotes here. Biophysicist, Dr. Lee Spittner, um, he said that type three has never been observed. No one's ever even been able to develop a mechanism to force type three. And that is macroevolution because it takes the generation of large quantities of new genetic information. And all of it, as Diane and Craig were showing, has to be fully functional from the beginning for you to have macroevolution. Um, John Sanford, John Sanford's the one who's famous for the developing the gene gun. Um, very well known for his genetic research. And he said, genetic entropy plus natural selection make Darwinism style evolution, macroevolution, scientifically impossible. That's why no one's ever been able to set up an experiment to make this happen. So that one has definitely been canceled. So we can go back, Sam and open it up for questions or more comments. All right, there we go. Great stuff. Thank you very much for that, Glenn. That was fantastic. And thank you very much to the whole panel tonight for uh, all of their contributions. Uh, oh, I've just thanks, got a couple Joe. of nice well, you as well. Nice You're awesome, Sam. Oh, no. It's, 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 it's my... Um, it's my impersonations of the pair characters exaggerating, stretching their exactly. arms forward to offer a cup of coffee. You know... Um, there's actually a question that's just come through, which I just dashed off to go and grab a uh, a, a, a prop for, which was about. Uh, whoops, where's it gone? Hold on, let's try and find it. It's disappeared. Is the one about wounds, Sam? Is they there? Is that oh there? yeah, that one from there Doki. Okay, why do the medieval and mythical movie characters shove plants into a wound for a quick fix? Um, I couldn't think of a a a. a, a medieval or mythical movie in which they do that but i'm sure they do because i'm not up there on my medieval or mythical movies lord of the rings do they do that in lord of the rings 
Anyway, um, there are there is some truth to it because I do know that this mm -hmm. was a, a well known medieval um fix. Uh, if we hold that up, I don't know if you can just about see what that is. Well done if you've uh, if you've if you've got it. Um, this is actually a dried up puffball fungus. Uh, we have a whole fungus collection because I I'm still very much into fungus, but was very heavily into uh, fungus collecting and preserving and recording uh, in my teenage years. That's what I spent most of my time between the age of 12 and 16 was out with sort of like 60-year-old people looking for mushrooms. But anyway, um, <laughs> these are some of the collections that I've got. Uh, this is a, a dried-up puffball. So if you know the puffball, the big white, uh, fairly, fairly firm fungus can get really big, very good eating. This is what happens when they mature. And you might just be able to see if we can get it into uh, get it into focus there. You might just be able to, uh, to see. Let's see. There we go. There it is in focus. Let's see if we can keep it in focus. Can you see the – oh, you can just about see there. Can you see all the spores yeah. coming off? Yes, that actually highlights that quite nicely. There we go. Those are all the spores. So the, it's very, very light. It feels like a very light sponge. And as the uh, wind sort of blows it around, it uh, distributes all of its spores. So that's how it uh, does its spore dispersal. However, these are were well known in uh, medieval times. If you were a farrier uh, or, you know, a, a squire who looked after the horses of the knights uh, or even just a general soldier, you would often keep these in your pouch one of these why well if you got injured or if your horse got injured you'll take a big chunk of this and you'll press it up into the wound and bind it with a bandage obviously whatever you can find or rip up and um they did this because this will actually help it to heal and it does two specific things uh, which we found out in modern times what it does the first one is it is antiseptic so the spores and the material is actually antiseptic they are um as most funguses they are um antibacterial you think of like penicillin right which is the original mm -hmm. antibiotic it's a fungus you'll find that lots of fungus are actually antibacterial and antiseptic in that way so antibiotic as well so um that's the first thing it is an, an antibiotic it is antiseptic so that helps secondly it's also soft and spongy right so it actually will absorb blood and will kind of absorb quite a lot of blood so it can help with the clotting uh, that is creating a barrier to blood from flowing so that the blood can actually clot and uh, begin to produce the scab. So it's actually really very, very useful, little things like this. Um, and it's amazing the kind of uh, usefulness that God has designed into some of these things. So, um, Sam, you actually mentioned earlier um, about a, um, a, a fungus, which I think we'd uh, do very well to actually um, include <coughs> one day. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe in the in the mm. new year, a, a specific fungus-related uh, creation conversations, not just looking at the design of fungus, but also asking things like, well, the example that you brought up, Sam, was cordyceps. Mm. I have an example of cordyceps somewhere in the museum collection. <laughs> uh, what, is, what does that do, Sam? So um, a cordyceps <laughs> is essentially, it's, well, it's, it's it can be otherwise better known as, more commonly, the zombie ant fungus. Um, so the idea of the fungus is it basically infiltrates the, the ant's body, um, either through, uh, through the skin or uh, through ingesting. And then the, the fungus will actually grow through the nervous system and grow through the brain and control the ant 
to get it to where it needs to go. And basically it becomes like a zombie. Um, and this has been explored in the uh, video game and subsequent TV show, The Last of Us, um, which was, um, it was, it's been a smash hit, um, but took the concept of the zombie ant virus and applied it to if it happened to humans, uh, which is a bit of a different take on the zombie um, uh, genre, which is a bit relevant because we're coming up to Halloween. But anyway, um, but this article was talking about how this fungus can now sort of has evolved um, the ability to affect living tissue as opposed to just uh, dead um, tissue. Um, so yeah, that, that's 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 what I was uh, sending over. But I think yeah, it would be good to do a, um, a full program on sort of uh, fungus and cordyceps and you know it, where's that in a good world? That would be good. Mm. Yeah, I think it'd definitely be a good program to have in the future and uh, talk about just the general design of a fungus as well as um, some of the amazing things that you can learn from fungus as well as uh, these bigger questions around mushrooms as well. So, And also as well, another good topic would be to uh, tackle uh, drugs as well. I thought that would be interesting. Like, you know, did God give marijuana or magic mushrooms for us to consume? Is that a result of a fallen world? That sort of thing. We could explore that as well. That's a, that's the big thing now is going back to kind of the, the oils, the essential oils extracted mm. from plants. And uh, mm. our daughter got us started in it, and we found it to be very useful. Mm. Yeah. Show them yeah. that. Well, it's, it's also related to there's the same question of things like toxins. You know, mm. some of the most toxic plants in the world also produce the greatest medicine. So it's like, mm. you know. You can, there's a, there's an answer to hidden in there somewhere. But anyway, now that's great. Thanks um, all very much for that. Thank you for all your questions. We've got uh, about 15 to 20 minutes or so to uh, answer some questions and run down through. Um, Craig will have to drop out in the next sort of five minutes or so. So let's uh, move on, Sam, to some more questions that we can run down through and have a chat uh, about uh, anything else that's come up before we bring it round to a close. Or can I go on. So Craig, just... go on. I'll just can I do it to do a, a brief advertisement oh. um, for the uh, I want to do a road trip next year through central Victoria New South Wales and up into Queensland and probably back down the coast so if there's anyone out there that would uh, like to to host me at, at the church or youth group or midweek meeting or whatever uh, just let us know great stuff yeah that'll be June, June July next year June July Great stuff. All right. All right, then. Yep, go for it, Sam. Awesome. Uh, well, we've got some thanks to give out first. Um, we've got to give out a thanks to Doki. Doki, again, coming in with oh. 99 US Centre Roots, a smiling face with sunglasses. I, I'll have to co just cover my eyes uh, <laughs> for that one. Um, and uh, I have no idea how I'm going to do this one. Douglas Boffy coming in with five British buckaroos, a Shiva dog clapping his hands. Arr, 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 arr. No, that's a seal. seal. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> bork, bork, bork. Um, I don't, I don't, how does a Sheba dog? But, whack, whack. I don't know. What's a Sheba dog? But anyway, we're very grateful. For a Sheba dog. It's a, it's a Japanese dog, <clears> I <throat> believe. It's uh, well, it, it sort of originates from Japan. And it's the name Sheba. You're still laughing about the, the seal, aren't you? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least there you go. That's my role for this this uh, this week's creation conversations. Right, here's a question coming from uh, Doki Doki. This is an interesting one. Will there be farming on Mars someday? 
This brings to mind the um, the novel in the film The Martian. Yes. Um, with um, oh, what's the the botanist name? Oh. It's played by um, uh, Matt Damon in the film, anyway. Um, but he's a botanist, and he gets left behind on Mars, and he has to survive. And he, just, he grow he survives by growing potatoes in Martian soil, um, fertilizing it with human waste. Um, but mm. yeah, so that's interesting. It, you know, it's an interesting Elon Musk topic. Is trying to do that, isn't he? Yeah, Nuking I think so. the poles or whatever, and mm. that would bring up another topic: is trophism. Just why do plants grow up? And, and one of the factors is gravity. And so there is, I've got colleagues that were doing research on zero gravity plants, uh, because one of the problems is getting water, water movement and, and irrigating. Mm. And so, yeah, it, that would yep. be an interesting topic. I'd, I'd hate to be in charge of watering the plants in Mars. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm. I'm have to admit, I'm not convinced of the colonization of Mars no, um, idea in, uh, in 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 <laughs> general. I'm not convinced that it's ever going to happen. Um, but here's uh, my prediction: is is that the Lord will return before we ever get anywhere close to thinking about that? Yeah, <laughs> we've yeah, we've messed this world up enough. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm not convinced. But anyway, it'll be interesting. It's interesting yeah. thinking about the um, past part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what, well, what well it gets involved? you to think what what is necessary for plants yeah. to grow, mm. and that's actually good evidence for creation because it's yeah. not um, you. You have to take into account the uh, the atmosphere, the soil, the water, the gra even the gravity. I've never thought of that before, Glenn. That, that, that's really important. Um, temperature. And the temperature. And the minerals uh, in the soil yeah. as, as well. Mm. And also, like, you know, there's certain plants. I've tried growing semi-exotic plants in the UK before, right? Things like, you know, pineapples, bananas, stuff like that. And uh, even in greenhouses, even in heated greenhouses, they just don't grow very well because mm. the daylight hours are not long enough. Yeah. Well, if we're going to struggle growing bananas in England, goodness knows what it'll be like trying to do it on Mars, <laughs> even, <laughs> even with heated greenhouses. It's just not enough sunlight. It's a think but, about yeah. the research. Their research were on these airplanes, and you have to set up the experiment so that then the plane takes a nosedive and they simulate zero gravity mm. And they quickly have to do their experiment while they're <laughs> falling and floating. It, it's also interesting Not as well. It, it, yeah, the, Not um, for me. I was I was just thinking it it sort of brings up the the, the concept of the Goldilocks zone, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, you know how how you know how we we are literally perfectly placed in terms of distance mm. away from yeah. the sun for mm. life to be able to thrive and exist and to <laughs> you know. Be, become self-sufficient you know you've got the um you know well the concept of mother nature but the you know the you know the concept you know of you know uh, words are escaping me but you know what i mean yes. um and you know not too hot not too mm. cold uh you've got the right amount of atmosphere yeah. right amount of oxygen mm. you know it's it's all perfect for life but then obviously if you're going away to mars you know you've got less sunlight you don't know mm. necessarily what the soil conditions are going to be are we going to have to artificially put in minerals and um fertilizer yeah, well, and things like that you know 
a whole bunch of things as well as the gravity i didn't i didn't even think of that either mm. um you know and if we take one step closer to the sun you know the gravity issue would become probably even worse because it, it you know could, you, you don't know i mean <laughs> we don't know because we haven't been there and tried it and tested it but at the same time we don't really need to go because we know that things are going to be so vastly different that it just won't thrive I think what, what what is the motivation for it? Um, mm. Is it because people are so worried about their future on this planet um, that that we need to start looking at another planet to colonise and grow things on? I, I think it's it comes down to your, your concerns about the future, and um, as as believers, we we don't need to worry about that. We yeah. we've mm. we know we've got a Lord that has got the future in His hand. It's also mm. as well a um, a th it's 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 a it's wanting to become like God in a way, mm. where they are basically going to be going to Mars and and essentially creating a life sustaining planet from a non life sustaining planet to become like God in Genesis when he created plants and sea sea, sea reptiles uh, animals you know humans birds insects bacteria you know the cell dna all of that you know the complex the complexity you know it's irreducible complexity you know, and it just all goes so well together and yet we and the more we study it the more it's just clear it took a genius beyond a genius to design all these various living organisms yeah. and then they all have to function together, together. together yeah. as an ecosystem yeah. mm. and you know it just it's a picture of how much god loves us because he could have created it all very simple very bland and all one color and all one style one design but the variability in all of this mm. intricate design is just mind-boggling yeah and then picture this we're actually aliens on a foreign planet on this earth because our citizenship is in heaven. True. <laughs> yes, I, I, I tend to agree with Craig's point about I, I think the Lord will come before um, we've had any chance to try and grow plants seriously on Mars. And anyway, what would be the point? Uh, mm. We're meant to live on this earth. It was created for us. Uh, mm. <clears throat> they have tried to grow plants in the International Space Station, and I think they have partly um, succeeded by growing them in containers. And I don't know whether that sort of controls the the movement of water and, and nutrients or, or whatever, but it, it strikes me as being extremely contrived. I'd much rather grow plants down here. Mm. Yeah. Who'd have thought we'd get all of that out of about botany <laughs> on Mars? Goodness me. Well, the, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Shall we do another question? <laughs> yes, indeed. Craig, I think you've got to <clears throat> pop off now, haven't you? I'm, I'm going to go. Yeah, all right, see, see you later, later. Craig. Um, right, best, Craig. Let's move on to another question. Um, this one comes in from Shokiwa. Question. Have you heard of the idea that originally we were created to eat seeds slash fruits pre-fall, post-fall they could eat the plants of the field and then after the flood could eat meat? Um, go, Jeff, go. I haven't heard of it. Yeah, I'm just reading, just reading that, reading that, reading that again. Sorry, have you heard of the idea that originally we were created yes. to eat seed, fruits pre-fall, post-fall yes. they could eat the plants of the field. 
Yes. And yeah. So, right. Sorry. Yeah. Just so I had to read through that again for a second. Um, okay. Very quickly. And then I'll let, let, let Glenn and Diane have a, have a comment. If you go to um, Genesis chapter one, uh, verse 13 and 31, we are told that all animals, all creatures, humans included that, were only given permission to eat plants. We were created to eat plants and the plants were created to sustain us. And that's a point which a lot of people often gloss over. Um, it's not just that we were created to eat plants. The plants were created to be good for us. They, all the herbs of the field were good for us in the beginning, right? There we are, that perfect mm. reference. I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face mm. of the earth and every tree that is in this fruit, you shall have them for food. Sure. Okay. Um, mm. Skip forward to Genesis chapter 3. You have the fall. Now, all of a sudden, human beings are going downhill. That's the old good to bad to worse, right? And so are the plants. Now, the plants are degenerating. But you've got to remember, this is still close to creation. Um, you have minor degeneration, which is kind of accelerating as the years go forward. So you've got quite a while before the plants start to fall apart in quite the same amount that they have today. And it's the same story for human beings. You do have one other piece of uh, information we're told that thorns and thistles will come onto the planet and that man will have to start to work for his food um no longer will it be a a a, a good world as it was originally created by the time you get to noah's flood you find that the uh thought and intent of every man was only evil continually so the world has gone from good to bad and by the end of the flood, you find the first reference to climate change. For as long as the earth shall remain, there'll be sea time, harvest, cold, heat, summer and winter. Now, what this is going to do is it's going to force diversification. It's going to force uh, degeneration of plants. And so now the plants are no longer as good for you as they were in the beginning. And no longer are you able to digest the plants as well as before. Second point, you've also got erratic climates going on now. And God tells Noah to spread out into all the world and his descendants to spread out into all the world and fill it. Now, they, of course, didn't, and they eventually did after the Tower of Babel incident, right? But you come to a very quick realization that if you're going to move and live on the frozen ice caps, you're never going to be able to be a vegetarian or a vegan. It's just not going to work, right? You're going to need to be able to eat meat in order to survive. And so you'll find at the end of the flood, that's the first reference that we find to God giving permission to man to eat uh, meat. It says that everything that moves shall be food for you. At this point, we don't have distinctions between you can't eat the unclean, you can eat the clean, that's later. Uh, and for the uh, the children of Israel, that comes in in the, uh, in, the, in, the uh, in, in Exodus and in the Levitical laws. But at this point to Noah, to all of mankind, he says you can eat everything that moves, but don't eat the blood, right? That was the only stipulation. Uh, and you'll find that in the book of Acts, when the uh, apostles and the disciples of Jesus were wrestling over, well, which of the laws do we keep? Which of the laws do we not? They went back to that original covenant that God made with Noah and said, right, this is the one we're going to go with. Uh, you can eat everything that moves, but don't eat the blood, right? 
So yes, we were created to eat plants. It's not until after the flood that God in his mercy gave us permission to eat meat because now we're told to spread out and fill the world. Now no longer is the world not very good. It's gone from good to bad to worse because of the effects of the global flood. Our bodies have gone from good to bad to worse. The plants have gone from good to bad to worse. So now we're given permission to eat meat and we're told everything that moves shall be food for you. So you see this digression as well as God's mercy in allowing us to eat meat in that. But yes, it's true, we were not created to eat meat. Uh, we were created and commanded to eat plants. And it wasn't until after the flood that we were given permission. Now, were people and animals eating um, meat before the flood? Well, you certainly find evidence of scavenging um, towards the latter part of the flood. But I suspect that that has more to do with the fact that this is a world which is being destroyed over the course of 150 days. And the final remnants of the animals are struggling to find anything to eat. And so you tend to find more evidence for scavenging than specific hunting and carnivorous behavior. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if even humans were eating meat before the flood, because at the end of the day, these were sinful people. Right? Yes. These were people whose only thought and intent of their heart was evil, so they couldn't care less about what rule God did or didn't say. So um, I do suspect, however, that it would be Noah who uh, would be sticking to those commandments. Um, and we know that there's a concept of clean and unclean by the time you get to Noah's day, because he took two of every unclean animal, but seven of every clean animal. And if you look through the laws, you find that clean and unclean often has a lot in parallel with what the animal eats, right? Does the animal scavenge like a pig or does it just eat grass like a cow? So you have some interesting connotations there. But yes, created to eat plants, only given permission to eat plants. Sin happens. Sin changes the world. Flood happens. Flood changes the world. World goes from good to bad to worse. And our necessity and in God's mercy, he gives us permission to eat meat after the flood. So any other comments from the team? Yeah, just that uh, before the flood, I mean, before the flood, before the fall, before sin entered, uh, they were still given work to do, to tend the garden. Mm -hmm. And so the work didn't have anything to do with the, the fall, but it did have to do then the work became very difficult. The agricultural work, um, it was by the sweat of the brow. And that then it became work, and I, you start seeing the degeneration of the plants, degeneration uh, of the animals as well. So genetically, then from that point forward, it wouldn't be as healthy or as good for you um, once the fall took place. But I, it was still the same plants. Before the fall, you could eat plants, seeds, fruits. Mm -hmm. It just changed how much work it was to do it. I picture the garden as you just walked along and just enjoyed it. Um, and then afterwards, you're tilling and you're working and you're sweating. Looking forward to that new heaven, new earth. Yes, indeed. I, I want to taste that new heaven banana bread because that's got to be some good banana bread. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, if you think that if you like bananas and you live in England, just wait until you pick them fresh off of John's tree in his garden and eat them. They're like beyond anything that you've ever tasted before. The flavor is incredible. Um, yeah. But yeah. Right. Um, do it. How many, how much we're seeing this degeneration? Mm. Uh, we've got animals that are allergic to things that they were normally eating. Mm. Uh, you're seeing, I think, the accumulation of mutations, e mm. even in the animals. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that mm. new heaven, new earth, but we don't have Amen. that. Amen. All right. Let's, uh, any more questions, Sam, before we wrap up? 
Um, we've got one from Douglas Boffy. Um, this is sort of an interesting one. Um, when Noah got drunk, was that because the potency increased during the deluge? Or because he's been on a ship for a year and hasn't had any alcohol in his system? Or, did... or found, uh, yeah. I'm just thinking found something that he didn't found something at the back of the arc, like, oh I forgot about this. What's up? No. Um it's an interesting question, actually. Um, if you look at things like like um yeast and the production of alcohol, um with with things like grapes, the yeast is found naturally on the on the grapes. Mm. And so as soon as you start to mash your grapes and turn it into juice, there's very little you can do uh, to stop it from turning producing alcohol. You have to actually artificially sterilize it in order to produce grape juice, which wasn't really perfected until the like the 18, early 19, 1800s, early 1900s. Um, so as soon as you get juice from grapes, you're going to start to turn it into, into alcohol in, in some way. Um, the content of alcohol is based on the content of sugar. Um, so maybe that has something to do with it. Um, if in a, You'll often find that if uh, you start uh, growing stuff in a climate which is unusual for that plant or if a sudden climate change happens you can kind of blanch the plant force it into producing sugars at a higher quantity more quickly so maybe that had something to do with it maybe the sugar content was not as high before the flood and now in a new world you're forcing a higher sugar content which is going to produce more alcohol um i'm just speculating here right a cooler environment the cooler environment usually they put up more sugars yeah. And so if he's now at a very higher elevation and he's not, you know, that, that didn't exist before the flood, well, it could very likely have a much higher sugar content than he was yeah. used to. And maybe uh, it could be more to do with the way that, um, um, you know, it, also you've got to bear in mind that um, when God created, there was a, a tending of the garden for sure. But you've got to remember that everything was good to eat at this mm. point everything right so you could have plucked any leaf you want any fruit you wanted you know whatever and eat it and it's good for you so what you wouldn't have to do yes you'd have to tend but what you wouldn't have to do is produce stuff on mass get out of mm. your head of this kind of like mass uh, production that we see in farming and stuff today that leads to a lot of problems uh, with 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 agriculture and so um before the flood, when before you have a mechanism for major climate change, yes, you have 1500 years, uh, 14 to 1500 years approximately of uh, the fall happening, right? Degeneration. Mm -hmm. But you don't have a major mechanism for climate change. So, yes, the plants are start slowly going downhill, but there's not that acceleration factor. So, the majority of stuff is going to be good to eat. So you're not going to have to work that hard to get your food. You're not going to have to uh, mass produce um, food in farms and so on and so forth. Then you have the flood and then you have uh, Noah coming off of the flood and settling in the land of Shinar. And he settles and I think it's in Genesis 9 it says that he, he planted a vineyard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're now producing a large quantity of these grapes. And if you are from a farming or a gardening background, as I am, you'll know that you get to this kind of period 
in the sort of springtime, which we got to know as the hungry period, because you, your garden's not producing anything, right? So what do you do to get through the hungry period? You grow extra through the summer and the autumn. You have a harvest period where you harvest all this stuff en masse, which you wouldn't have to, have to have done in a good world or in a world where the climate was perfect. Mm -hmm. And then you're having to preserve that food in some way. Now, with our modern things, we can freeze and, you know, can and whatever. Um, but in the past, you wouldn't have done that. You would have mashed, you would have bottled, you would have jarred, you would have dried, yes. you would have salted, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, if you're growing a vineyard and it's mass producing, you're now mass producing these grapes, which only are going to fruit at a certain time of year, unlike all the year round, like a lot of other fruits do in tropical environments, think, you know, um, think of, you know, figs or I remember going to John, you know, John's garden in, in Australia and he had six year old tomato plants. Well, here in England, the tomatoes grow and they die, right? Um, so now Noah's having to collect all these and preserve them in some way. So you're producing alcohol. If you're producing large amounts of sugar and you're bottling large amounts of this, uh, um, you know, grape juice, it's going to produce large amounts of very high concentrate alcohol. And so, you know, it's all speculation, but you can still kind of see how you could get to that degeneration, which wouldn't have been there before because it wasn't necessary to produce, mass produce this volume of, uh, of, of, of grapes or wine or whatever before. So, you know, yep. a few thoughts. All right. Um, well, we're coming out to the end now uh, of our creation conversations. Thank you very much for for, for joining us. Um, we'll be back next week with um, On the Origin of Evil. Yes, I know we're sort of a little bit late for the, the Halloween time, but um, John uh, needed to, um, it wasn't able to make it today. He's yeah. having a well-earned break. So we'll be back with On the Origin of Evil. Um, and we're looking at it, obviously, from a biblical point of view uh, and looking at what is the concept of evil uh, and uh, looking for things like, you know, when did evil start? Who determines what is right and wrong? Who draws the line in the sand? And all of that kind of stuff. So it should be a good program. So do join us next week for that. And uh, until then, goodbye and God bless. It's been great to have you all with us again. And we will see you all very soon. Any last words? Yes. Um, botany, that's a good one. Yes, yes, that's a good one. Botany, yes, yes. Try go out and try a bit of botanizing. <laughs> botanize, don't colonize. There you go. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> catch you later, folks. We'll see you next see ya. time. <laughs> Bye, all. <laughs>